If I were to ask you the goal of the Christian life in one word, what would you say? Or what would you, how'd you pin that down? We talked about this a few weeks ago, a few months ago, rather now, in the uh, study that we do on Tuesday night. But you could pin it down to a couple of words that mean similar things. You could call it sanctification, holiness, or even Christ-likeness, which is kind of a difficult word to maybe, ah, maybe it's two words, but you can hyphenate it or unhyphenate it. But that's the goal. That's got to be the goal of the Christian life. Sanctification, holiness, Christ-likeness. We know that from a place like 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. If you see that phrase in the Bible, you should pay attention. This is the will of God. And what does it say? Your sanctification. That's God's will. To purge sin, to break the habits of wickedness, to renew your mind, to pursue righteousness, to put on the new self and put off the old self, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we can all say with a hearty amen, that's what we want to do. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to be about. But here's something that maybe we need to think about in conjunction with this is, but what about the everyday, maybe even a little bit humdrum duties, situations, and opportunities that come in life? See, those are the things that we tend to get hung up on the most. Those are the things that we tend to talk to each other about, talk to our pastor about. What is God's will in this duty this opportunity or this situation, that's where we want to find it. We know God's will for us is sanctification, and that's the goal of the Christian life, but what's our goal in the duties, situations, and opportunities in everyday life? I think we can simply distill that down to one word as well, is just faithfulness. That's the goal. And the things that we have that come along our way that are duties, responsibilities, situations, opportunities, options, faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's what they be found, faithful, faithfulness. I remember years ago now, when I was being interviewed to be here as the pastor, the, the question comes, and it's normal and it's expected, of what would be your goal when you got here? What would be your goal? And that's, a, that's of course, a heartfelt question to receive. And you can lay out goals, but anything beyond just saying faithfulness is the goal is presumptuous. All right, well, the goal would be we're going to be in a building and at some point in time, we're, we're not there. <laughs> That's a goal not met. Or we're going to increase attendance by X percent. That's presumption. We're going to see 90 conversions in 90 days of prayer. That's a goal, but I'm not in control of any of that. Any goal that we set in the Christian life and certainly in the life of the whole church is presumption. It's just presuming that I can manipulate and make things like that happen. Now that's not wrong in business life. That's not wrong for your personal, personal health or weightlifting or athletics or whatever those things may be. But in the church and in the Christian life, the only thing that we can say is, I have to be faithful. That's the goal. Because can you be faithful without being numerically successful? 
I think the easiest way to figure that out, the answer to that question is the Old Testament prophets. How many of them were successful? I can think of two out of all of them. And they're both minor prophets that we never read. Haggai and Zechariah. And what were they faithful in? During Ezra's day, the temple was being rebuilt. Or what were they successful in? Temples being rebuilt, the people stopped building the temple. Haggai and Zechariah prophesy, preach, and command, and people start building the temple again. Every other, and they're two minor prophets out of 12. Every other minor prophet, unsuccessful. Major prophet, unsuccessful. Elijah and Elisha, unsuccessful. Moses even, the greatest of all prophets, the Old Testament says, it calls him that, is unsuccessful because he leads a million people out of Egypt. How many go in the promised land? Two, not even including himself. So we look at the, the, the statistics and the numbers and if we're gonna make goals be like that, then that's, that's unsuccessful. But were those men faithful? Did they proclaim the truth? Did they do everything that God commanded? Well, absolutely. God determines the results. He doesn't measure our worth by tangible, quantifiable results that we as humans can evaluate. He's the one who determines the results. What does, what does Apostle Paul say when he's describing ministry? I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. I could plant all day and water all day and nothing happens. That's always what happens when I plant any actual plant in my yard. I plant and water all day and they all die. God, I can't make them grow. That the images should be burned in our brain, but what does God require? That we be found faithful. So then you move to Esther chapter four. Can you imagine coming up with a specific training program for Esther's situation? That would be impossible. That would be impossible to train somebody to prepare. Hey, okay, young lady, I know you're three, four, five years old. Your parents are gonna die. I'm gonna prepare you for that. I'm gonna train you for that. And then you're gonna be an orphan. And then your older cousin is gonna adopt you and be your father. I'm gonna prepare you for that new dynamic. What's it like to be in a single parent household that's also adoptive? But then you're also gonna be kind of kidnapped as a mail order bride, kind of, but you're a foreign people, a religious minority in this massive empire. You can't, you can't train for this specific situation. You can't do that. Being a secret Jewish queen of Persia in the midst of genocide, that's not in the Sunday school curriculum. You can't train for that. But as a youth, when Esther is a youth, what could Mordecai, her father, actually do? What could he actually do in her life? Prepare her for. He could prepare her to be faithful to God and his word, come what may. He could prepare her for that. The discipline, the lifestyle, and the heart of faithfulness, that can be trained in all of us. That can be learned, that can be developed. We can become singularly concerned with being faithful to God in every situation he places us in. We can do that. That's just like what Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one says, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do I glorify God and enjoy him? By being faithful. That's what glorifies God and that's what brings joy in God, is faithfulness. So here now in the book of Esther, we have reached the crucial turning point. We just read it. What will she do? 
What role does faithfulness play? Is God still providentially directing history and will he keep his promise? We'll get into the promise a little bit later. That's, we've reached the crucial point. So the severity of the situation is laid out first for us in verses nine through 11. When Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said, which was go plead on behalf of the people. Then Esther returned and spoke to Mordecai or to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know, everybody knows this Mordecai, that if any man or woman, any person goes into the king inside that inner court without being called, there's just one law, put him to death, unless he extends out the golden scepter. And as for me, I have not been called to come to the king for a month or 30 days. Esther, you can see, it's just, does, does Mordecai know what he's asking? Now, Esther's reply, it's, it seems confused, but at the same time, seeking to be a little bit informative, almost like a, like a child being asked by their father to do something that seems like that's gonna hurt. Son, jump off this cliff. Dad, I don't know if you know, but cliffs are high, and I am frail. No, do it. He knows there's a cushion down there. But that's, what she, that's where she's coming, not disrespectful or dismissive, but perplexed by the ask of Mordecai. She's like, um, everybody knows what happens if you do this, including you, Mordecai, because you're an official in the capital citadel of Susa. You definitely know this. Is Mordecai so distressed about the pending genocide that he's just forgotten? Is he just irrational now, lose the sight of the severity of this? Doesn't Mordecai know that this is a deadly request? I mean, in Esther's mind, this is the equivalent of standing ankle deep in gasoline and having a, ma a box of matches, striking them, lighting them, and throwing them as high in the air as you can, hoping they blow out before they hit the gas. Maybe you don't blow up, but good gravy, why are we gonna play this game at all? That's where Esther is. The king is unstable. He's so unstable that he'll kill unwanted visitors. I mean, just hear that. That's the law. That's the rule. Everybody knows. Now, it's partly, if you just dig in historically, we don't know this in the scriptures. We know this from history, that a Persian king was so paranoid of assassination that he would sit sequestered and protected that anybody who came in that he didn't want just killed that person. So now the threat of assassination goes way down. Now your chances of being killed go way down. You're under guard and protection, and any, anybody you don't stick your golden rod out to, they just kill that person on sight. Problem solved. And hasn't there already been an assassination attempt upon King Ahasuerus' life in this book? There absolutely has. So the paranoia of all of this is real. This is an unexpected, or this is rather an, an expected response from Esther. We would expect this kind of response. It's not rebellious, but it is hesitant, concerned with the danger that she would face. She's not currently thinking about the danger that her people are imminently facing right now. And she's also, if you look at the last part of verse 11, she's just a powerless plaything. She hasn't been summoned, spoken to, connected with the king in a month. 30 days, he had not wanted to talk to her not wanting to be around her. And she has no clout, no influence. 
At least that's what she thinks. And based on the king's indifference lately towards her, it proves their marriage to be this unequally yoked and polygamous reality because he hasn't been sleeping alone for 30 days. Not a guy with a harem. She can't ask him over dinner. Esther can't ask him over dinner or the, when they're getting ready for bed. She can't, she can't ask him while they both sit on their equal thrones. That's not the situation. She's a sports car in the garage. And she only gets taken out when the king's feeling sporty and wants to go for a drive. She's sequestered until that moment. She's an object that he engages with only when he wants to. And it seems like his affections are cooling towards her because he was all about her for a while and now 30 days he didn't want to deal with her. Nevertheless, the call to faithfulness still comes. Verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you see there a veiled but not so veiled threat from Mordecai? It's not really a threat. Nobody threatens their own daughter. But he talks to her like an adult, not like a child. He doesn't say, ah, I know it's scary, sweetie, but think about all the other people. He doesn't say it's a big ask, I know, but would you just please consider it? He doesn't say, this is totally crazy. I know you're busy. Say any of that. He tells her point blank. The edict is for genocide against you and everybody that you're related to. You won't avoid it just because you're in the palace, in the harem. Haman wants us all dead. He'll figure it out. You won't have any mercy extended to you. And remember, there's a couple hundred other women that can do your job and they're already in the palace too. He speaks to her like an adult. She needs to understand the gravity of the situation. She needs to act according to the truth. You cannot hide from this. You must not hide from this. He's challenging her to act according to the truth. The, our culture hates the truth in every way. And if we aren't careful, we can follow along with that subconsciously in certain situations. But what we should never be afraid of is the truth. The truth is never a fearful thing to us because God is the God of the truth. Jesus himself is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus had hard words for truth deniers, also known as liars. John 8, 44 and following, speaking of the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Why, Jesus? Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, speaks non-truth, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But I, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, i.e. the truth, 
The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. The gospel the truth that many don't want to hear. Look at Galatians 2, 4 through 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, that's so that they might bring us into slavery. He's talking about legalists creeping into the church to choke out Christian liberty and the freedom in Christ. See, to them, those people, we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, Mordecai is asking Esther to deal with the truth, which is what Jesus was after, which is what the apostle Paul was after, and in the days of, pro of the prophet Jeremiah, that's what he was after. He was dealing with a culture that told non-truths and everybody loved it. Jeremiah 5, 31, the prophets, these false prophets, they prophesy falsely, don't tell the truth. And the priests rule at their own direction, not according to the truth of the Bible. They just do whatever they want. And what does God say? My people love to have it so. They love it. They love false prophecy. They love rogue, non-truth following priests. But then the conclusion comes, what will you do when the end comes? You've been living according to lies. What will you do when the end comes? So the mindset of many is pretend that you don't sin. Pretend that there is no hell and find preachers who affirm that. But what will you do when the end comes? Because it's coming. What will become of lies then, at the end? Our only hope in the end is the truth. That's our only hope. Mordecai's bluntness is the opposite of the priests in Jeremiah's day, which was several centuries beforehand. He's not gonna let Esther carry on in a fantasy land of self-preservation and in a sense lying about who she is. She is a Jew. She is a covenant child of the one true God of creation. He's not going to let her continue on in that. What will she do when they come for her? She must live by the truth now. That's what he's calling her to do. But do you see this at the same time he's calling her to action? What does he say in verse 14? If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from some other place. He's calling her to action, but he's not saying that the fate of God's people rests on her because it doesn't. It doesn't rest on her. Mordecai is confident that God will keep his promise. The promise in Genesis 3.15, the subsequent promise in Genesis 12.15 and 17, the subsequent promise in 2 Samuel 7, and also Jeremiah 31, God will keep his promise. I'm not worried about that, Esther. I'm worried about what you're gonna do in obedience or disobedience to it. God does not break his word. Mordecai is convinced of that. He believes Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. It's a biblical way to say forever. He always keeps his promise. See, Mordecai's hope is in the covenant-keeping God of the Bible, not in Esther. You could imagine him at this moment 
thinking of the words of the King David written down in the Psalms, Psalm 42, verse 11, when David says to himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why, why are you despairing, self? Why are you depressed, worried, anxious? What is the solution? Hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Mordecai believes what David says. God is my salvation. That's where my hope is. My hope is not in my daughter who happens to be in the kingdom, in the palace at this time. So we ask ourselves, do we hope in God or in men? Have you ever thought about this? Is there anything in your life hanging upon the will of man? Is there anything? Are people, human beings, stopping us from getting what we want, what it is that we want what is good? Or think about this, are people ruling over us according to their own strength? Is that true at all? Is anything in our lives hanging upon the will, power, or authority of man? Remember when Jesus was talking to Pilate right before he's executed? John 19, 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Mordecai believes what Jesus believes, what we should all believe, what the Bible teaches, that nothing in our lives hangs upon the whims, the will, or the power of any man at all. Everything rests within the sovereign hand of God. The simplest and, and maybe even most trivial way I can think to illustrate this, go back to the first, uh, first man to disciple me besides my own father, meeting with me once a week, going through the scriptures, pouring into my character, pointing out sin, pointing me to Christ, it was a guy named Boyd Brigman. And he was the, at that time I was coaching in a little Christian school. He, I was a junior high coach and he was the high school football coach. So we were meeting together every week and it came up one time in conversation. We were talking about his playing day. He played football at Baylor when he was in college and he was frustrated about his playing time not getting to play very much. And then through a series of events of being involved in a good church and having good mentors himself at that time, he said, it dawned on me, if God wants me on the field, there is nothing that my coach, head coach, position coach can do or another player could do. If that's where God wants me, none of them can stop it. I will be there if that's what God wants. And that's, that's something so trivial as playing football compared to international genocide, but the principle holds true. Nothing stops the will of God. Everything is going according to his plan. All the time, always. Mordecai's ultimate confidence is in the almighty God of heaven. So too should ours be every day. Here one commentator, Pastor David Strain, he said this, the sovereignty and faithfulness of God is the scriptural medicine for the disease of fear. You kill the germ of anxiety with a hefty dose of divine sovereignty. Brothers and sisters, your life rests in the hand of God, of the God of infinite faithfulness, goodness, 
and grace, and you could not be safer nor more secure. That's the God that Mordecai believes in. That's why he can say to Esther, deliverance will rise. No matter what you do, God will keep his promise. But Esther, you are responsible for what you do. This is the collision of man's responsibility and God's providence. Humans still have a genuine responsibility to act faithfully. Mordecai's faith in God's sovereignty, it doesn't exclude Esther from responsibility in her role as queen. Why? Because the sovereign God of creation works through means and people are his means. He will accomplish his goals, but people are responsible for their actions. See, in God's providence, he makes Esther queen about five years ago from this point. She's been queen about five years. And he doesn't do anything by accident. Nothing he does is superfluous or irrelevant. He staged Esther in the palace for this moment. That question is rhetorical at the end of verse 14. And who knows whether or not you've come to the throne at a time such as this. No, we do know it is on purpose. That is why you are here. So now Esther needs to be faithful in that role. No matter what, God is gonna preserve his people. Redemptive history will press forward. The son of David will come. The new covenant will be enacted. All of those promises were enshrined in scripture before Esther's life. All of them were there. So this is gonna happen, but what will Esther's role be? Will it be compliance or defiance with the sovereign will of God? See, all Mordecai is calling her to do is to be faithful where God put her, that's it. If she wasn't queen, she doesn't have this responsibility. God did not put her in that role, but he did put her in this role. And that's all any of us are called to do is be faithful in the role God has put you in. We don't need to covet somebody else's position. We just press on in faithfulness right where we are. Think of Joseph in Genesis 38 through 50. He's just faithful as a son. Then he's just faithful as a slave. Then he's just faithful as a prisoner. And then he's just faithful as prime minister. All he does is obey the whole time and things get worse the more he obeys until it finally he's the second in command over the whole world. That's just faithfulness, every role that he's in. How is it that he's almost the youngest son, but Jacob trusts him the most? And then how is it that he's a slave and yet Potiphar trusts him the most? And then how is it that he's a prisoner and the guard trusts him so much, here's the keys, prisoner, take care of everything because I know that you will. And then when he's raised up to be prime minister, you know what it says in that part of Genesis? The only thing that Pharaoh concerned himself with was eating his own food. Everything else he entrusted to Joseph. The only thing Joseph didn't do and have control over was moving up and down the jaw of Pharaoh to chew his food. He did everything else. Faithfulness. God determines the setting and the fruitfulness. We merely concern ourselves with the faithfulness. And that's what Esther has been called to do. And look at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, that capital city, and hold a fast on my behalf 
and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Now that's a big fast. Jewish fasts were never that long, more than one day, and they certainly didn't carry over into the night. It was just during the waking hours for the purpose of prayer. So this is an extreme fast because these are extreme circumstances. This is international genocide we're talking about. She goes on to say, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Do you see Esther's immediate compliance? What a godly woman. No back and forth with Mordecai. No rebuttal, no bargaining, just quick submission right there. No, no, let's rethink, let's, let's find another way. None of that. We must assume that Mordecai's confidence in God's sovereignty motivated her instant inclination to faithfulness. See, this is a woman entirely yielded to the will of God when it's presented in front of her. A woman living like Christ. What did Jesus say? In the middle of that chapter four of John, when the, the big scene is the Samaritan woman at the well, and now Samaritan woman's gone telling everybody else in the town of Sychar about what she just learned, what just happened to her. The disciples come back with food and they're talking about food. And Jesus says to them, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The only thing I care about, the eating, the sustenance of my life is obeying God. And that's all Esther's doing. You see, the maturity of a believer, of a Christian, is most easily seen in the speed of their submission to God's word. That's how maturity is most easily seen, is in their submission to God's word and the speed at which that happens. See, a mature Christian is not only hungry to know God's word, but to receive it and obey it. See, most of the work of a pastor is dealing with people's hatred of God's word after you preach it to them. They don't tell you that in seminary. It would cost a lot less if they just told you that. Just preach God's word, and when people hate it, talk to them. <laughs> Keep telling them with it. But that's what 2 Timothy 4, 2 and 4 through 4 says. Preach the word. Timothy, you young pastor, I'm dying. Paul, Timothy, you're left in charge of this church in Ephesus. Preach the word. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. When and how often? In season and out of season. When people love them, people hate it. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. See, you're going to preach, and you're not going to like it, so be patient and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Are we in that time? We better believe that. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, people that will scratch the itch that they're after, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But the goal of the Christian life is to be a Thessalonian. To be a Thessalonian, look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. Paul gets to write happy letters to the Thessalonians and just encouraging them to excel still more. And he says this, he says, and you, you guys, you, you Christians of this town called Thessalon Thessalonica, you became imitators of us, meaning Paul and the believers that were with him when they went to that town, and of the Lord, meaning of Jesus. For you received the word in much affliction. Go read the book of Acts and see the kind of hatred and vitriol that the townspeople had against Christians. But you received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You just took the word right then. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, your state and then your region, 
But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Well, verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in your state and your region, Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we have not need to say anything. You guys are so submitted to the word of God, we don't have to tell you anything anymore. You have a Bible and you just do what it says and you just believe what it says. For they themselves, meaning those people that have heard about you, they report concerning us, so they tell us the reception, the kind of reception we had among you and how you, Thessalonians, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You heard the Bible and you punted all those idols. Everything that you had before, you just tossed it. And you're living so faithfully to the word that you're not only an example to everybody, you're an encouragement to everybody that we don't even need to come back and keep talking to you. Now, that's not the message the Corinthians got or the Galatians got or the Philippians got. But the Thessalonians, we have God's word. We're going to do everything that this says. And that's it. And that's where Esther is. That's Esther. So she just immediately goes into intentional preparation, this fasting that's called for. Now, fasting in the Old Testament is always connected to prayer. That's the point of fasting. You forget to pray. You don't labor very long in prayer. So here's a reminder that you can't miss. You can silence your phone alarms. You can forget what the rubber band on your wrist means or the, finger, the string around your finger means. But when you are hungry and your stomach is growling, automatic reminder, you need to pray. And you are committing yourself to praying today. That's the reason why you fast. It does not say in Esther 4 that they prayed while they fasted. And remember why the absence of God and the absence of explicit worship of God is supposed to draw us in. Supposed to draw us in to see God everywhere, though his name is not mentioned, so that we're instructed in our everyday lives to see God everywhere, controlling everything, though the majority of the world hates him and ignores him. We draw in and see this. Even Mordecai jumps to follow her commands. Have you seen the reversal of that? Then Mordecai went away, verse 17, and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Up to that point, it was Esther was obeying everything Mordecai ordered her. So we see here again the character of Mordecai. He's not about being the boss. He is about faithfulness. And so is Esther. And she knows that she is safe in the arms of God, and she's willing to pay the cost of faithfulness. She knows what she's doing is legally questionable, if not straight up illegal. She knows the toll could be her life, and she's counted the cost. She's not willing to pay the cost of what it is to deny God. She is willing to pay the cost of what it is to violate the king's rules. And this isn't fatalism, it's just faithfulness. And she's just being like her kinsmen in that same exile, in that same empire, just 50 years earlier. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bow down, worship the idol, and what do they say? Daniel 3, 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Meaning, you know what we're going to say. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. God is able. He can do this. And he will deliver us out of, our hand, out of your hand. Whether we live or die, you will not rule over us forever. They're confident of that, O king. But if not, 
if he doesn't save us from this furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We don't have to please you, O king, but we do have to please God. We don't have to live, but we do have to be faithful. God owes us nothing. We owe him everything, even our very lives. And he can take those lives whenever he wants to. See, now Esther, that's her kinsmen. Those are her people. And she would rather lose her life. If I perish, I perish. She would rather lose her life and save her soul versus gaining the comfort of this world, but lose her soul in the world to come. The Puritan Matthew Henry, he wrote from a perspective of like rewording Esther's words and kind of portraying her heart. He wrote it like this. He said, when we, speaking as Esther, when we have sought God in this matter, I will go unto the king to intercede for my people. I know it is not according to the king's law, but it is according to God's law. And therefore, whatever comes of it, I will venture and not count my life dear to me, quoting from the apostle Paul in Acts 20, so that I may serve God and his church. And if I perish, I perish. I cannot lose my life in a better cause. Better to do my duty and die for my people than shrink from my duty and die with them. Dying for them versus with them. And then he comments, she said not this in despair or passion, meaning just kind of an emotional outburst, but in a holy resolution to do her duty and trust God with the issue and welcome his holy will. Faithfulness as we close, it does come with a cost, but it also does come with an unimaginable reward. Matthew 10, 32, Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, and that's all Esther's being asked to do, acknowledge me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Can you imagine that? So often we're so numb to the gospel and the glories of Christ that when you stand before God, which the majority of created humans will stand and tremble and be crushed in fear, you will have Jesus step right next to you and claim you before the creator of the universe. That is unspeakable, unimaginable reward what, what king could possibly keep you from that? What threat could keep you from that? And look, look at Jesus speaking again in Revelation 3, 5. To the one who conquers, meaning the one who is faithful in this life. That phrase is used uh, many times in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. The one who conquers, meaning the faithful person, because we conquer in Christ, the book of Romans tells us. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and his angels. Isn't that the reverse of what we're told to do and how we get saved? All who confess the name of Christ will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord. And then Jesus says here, to the faithful and the ones who have faith, I will confess 
your name in front of the Father. what, What has been withheld from us? The Lord Jesus will claim you as his own when you stand in the most vulnerable position that every human being will ever stand in. Before God on that day, he will never blot your name out of his book. This is all. The book of Esther, the whole Bible is all about the glorious salvation that has been wrought by Christ. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who confesses me before men, I will confess before God. I will confess your name. That's the name that Jesus is going to say on the day you stand before God. What good we see in Esther and Mordecai, it's just perfected in Jesus. But that's not the point. The point is not to see Jesus as the perfect example, though he is. But if we look at the book of Esther, would any single Jewish person be saved because Esther lived a very upright and honorable life? No. They will only be saved if Esther is willing to stack on the chopping block. So in the same way, none of us will be saved because Jesus was a good example about how to live. Nobody is saved by a good example. We are only saved by a sacrifice. And God did not insist of Esther that she sacrifice her life. We know the story as it unfolds. But she had to be willing. Otherwise, nobody would be saved. If I perish, I perish. Jesus doesn't say, if I perish, I perish. He knows it. He tells his disciples three and four times before it ever comes, I will go to Jerusalem. I will be handed over to wicked men. They will crucify me, but I will rise again. So it's not if I perish, I perish. I will perish. I am here to perish. And when somebody tries to get in the way of that, nobody's getting in the way of Esther. Everybody's telling Esther, go do this. Peter tries to get in the way of Jesus doing this. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like the devil to keep me from death because death is the only way that life can come to those who follow me. So hearing that now, what has Christ withheld from you? What is keeping you from believing in that savior? What is keeping you from bowing in the knee to him? If your people group, if your particular uh, special interest group was under threat of genocide in our country and some representative from the group stepped in and saved you, you you would do anything for that person. You would follow them all around. You would set up statues to them. Christ has done that for you. So what is keeping you from celebrating him by doing the only thing that he's commanded all men everywhere to do, which is repent and believe? What is keeping you from that? What has he withheld from you? His life? His love? None of it. He has withheld none of it. A father who did not, how will he not also give all things to us who did not spare his own son? If he gave his son, what will he withhold? That is the Christ that we serve, and that is the Christ of the book of Esther. Esther is the type and shadow of which Christ is the substance as the sacrifice that saves the multitudes. Let's pray.
Father, I pray right now that if there are those who have not put their trust in your son, who have not considered what they will do when the end comes, who think that they will be saved by the Father, please subdue those hearts. Bring them to Christ. Christ whose arms are stretched wide, who beckons all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him for rest, true and eternal rest. Confidence that our brothers of old can say to King Nebuchadnezzar that they will be ultimately delivered. Whether they live or die, they will be delivered from the king, the wicked and evil king. Lord, please bring those souls to you. And those of us who have already bowed that knee in submission and trusted in Christ and know the new life, have tasted the sweetness and will not turn back. Those of us that are like that, Father, forgive us for our timidity and our embarrassment of that message. Give us appropriate boldness to, to share with neighbors and friends, coworkers, to fly the flag high, that these are people who are barreling towards uh, something worse than genocide, a wrath that they have no idea exists. Please, Father, give us boldness, and may we see many sons and daughters brought to glory. May we be found faithful. Father, we know that we are not saved by our faithfulness, because if that were the case, none of us would be saved. We know that we are called to live a life of faithfulness because we are saved by Jesus's faithfulness and his faithfulness alone. Only he could be entirely, completely, perfectly faithful. And because he was, you will count that level of faithfulness, that level of righteousness, that level of holiness as if it were ours. As Isaiah 61.10 says that we are clothed in the garment of salvation and covered in the robe of righteousness. Those clothes and that robe is not ours, Lord, and we thank you for it. What we are wearing is dingy, mud-stained, covered in garbage, ripped and shredded, and you pulled it off of us, washed us clean, and put us in Christ's perfect robe of righteousness. So we thank you. We are here as a people of gratitude. May we always be marked by gratitude to what it is that you have done for us. Certainly, you have given us our daily bread, all the times that we've ever eaten that has come to us from your hand. Certainly, the daily bread extends to cars and jobs and running water and air conditioning and heating and all of these things that we know come from you, Lord, but if they were all lost, but we kept the reality of you confessing our names to you on that day, we would give up anything to keep that. So we thank you for that promise that when we confess you, when we believe, truly believe, which means we can't waver no matter who challenges us, that you will confess our name. You will never blot our names out of the book of life. What more could we possibly want? What more could we ask for in this life but to never be blotted out of the book? So Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the example that we see 
and Esther and Mordecai. And we thank you that our goal is not to try to be like Esther and Mordecai, who, like us, are sinful, broken, flawed, inconsistent people. But we do thank you for the faithful examples of believing your word and of quickly submitting to the truth. May we take that example to heart and follow it, knowing that even when we fail, we are resting in Christ. Even when we come up short, even when we have moments like Peter, denying that we even know you, that we will be restored who are truly saved and thus then confessed before you. Father, thank you for this time and for this morning, this gathering of your saints. Be with us this week and we go forth in faithfulness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.